0: Well, let's pray together this morning. God, you are indeed the one from whom all blessings flow. We are grateful to be in your presence together this morning. Lord, you are our good and gracious God, the one who promises to never leave or forsake us ever. God, I pray that we would sit in the magnificence of that truth this morning. Let us rest assured in the knowledge that we are deeply loved by you, more than we could even imagine. And Father, we know that there are many in our world, those we work with, our friends, our neighbors, our family, who may not know you, may not know the depth of your love or experience the fullness of your grace and redemption. And Lord, maybe as we are here this morning and you are putting a specific person on our heart, God, we ask that you would meet them, that you would make yourself known to them, that you would use us in some way to show them who you are. God, we recognize that that requires less of ourselves and more of you, and we ask that you would meet us, you would intercede here in this place, and that our lives would be so filled by you, God, that we would be your witness in this world, that they would come to know you by us living here. God, meet us this morning, draws deeper into relationship with you in this place. Lord, and as we celebrate our students who are graduating, we thank you for the end of another school year. We thank you that in a year that has been hard, that has been difficult, that has had frustrations and discouragement, Lord, you have met us even there. And it has come to a close. And we are, we are thankful for the equipping work you have done for parents and for teachers. We're thankful for, thankful for the ways that students have learned, have gained knowledge. As most of them, many of them have returned to school, Lord, we'll th- we're thankful for that. And I know they especially are thankful for the break that is ahead of them thankful for summer for a chance to do different things to be with family in a different way and we pray that in that you would provide rest and refreshment for them and god for many of us whether we are continuing in the same thing or entering into something new lord provide rest give us spaces and moments to just sit in your presence and know who you are We ask that this morning would be one of those moments, God, that you would let us come to know you and love you in a more real and deeper way. We love you, Lord, in your name. Amen. As we turn now to our scripture reading for today, we get to sit in the truth of the reconciling work of our God that has, he has done for each of us. And that because of that, our identity is no longer as one who is far off, but one who has been brought near um, and who gets to know the Lord as a dear child. So here are these words from Ephesians 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit.
1: Father, it is such a privilege to come before the one who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in it, who commands the wind, the weather, who brings life out of death and made the nations and out of those nations called Abraham to create a new people for your name. We thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ and him becoming flesh, taking upon our humanity, living the life he wants us all to live by means of the Holy Spirit and through his death and resurrection seats us at the right hand of God. And now with that wonderful gift poured out, give us the illumination of the Holy Spirit transport us to see the heavenly glory and the plan you have to reconcile the whole world to yourself through the process of your sovereign grace. We thank you for this privilege in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're new here or online, we're continuing our series in the life of Joseph. And these final three weeks are on the theme of reconciliation. You know, when wounds cut deep and family members are cut off from one another, the work of reconciliation becomes very, very difficult. And last week, we left our story of Joseph's reconciliation with his brothers deadlocked in a stalemate between a son in Egypt um, and a father in Canaan. And God had faithfully set the stage through a famine to bring his family together, but one brother was missing, the youngest, Benjamin. And Joseph had told his brothers that if they wanted to see their brother Simeon again, they all had to return with Benjamin. But when the brothers returned home, their father Jacob was so consumed by self-pity He had no eyes of faith to see what God was doing and brought that process to an abrupt halt. So the question that emerges is that who in this family can step up to the plate and break the impasse? Who will be the human instrument to fulfill Joseph's dreams and reunite a torn family? And how will he do it? So when the head of the home refuses to lead spiritually, what can children do? Do they resort to deception? Or are there any cards of truth left in their hand to play? Our story is full of surprises, both on the instrument God chooses and the methods that he uses. So our text is a masterpiece of God's grace in the process of reconciliation and models how to be a leader for reconciliation even when you have not been given the authoritative role. So we begin in chapter 43 of Genesis, verse 1. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again and buy a little food. Well, for months, no one was able to break the impasse after Jacob refused to let Benjamin return to Egypt. But as time passed, all the grain was consumed and it forces Jacob to break the silence by suggesting to the sons, return to Egypt to buy a little food. Now, this was one of those reluctant requests voiced out of sheer necessity of survival, couched in a whisper, hoping to achieve success without confronting the family issues. Jacob refuses to face the facts But fortunately for this family, there is one son who will not allow his father to live a denial. And that son is Judah. Verse 3 and following Judah, the realist, puts all the facts on the table. He does so brilliantly, forcefully, yet respectfully without violating Jacob's role as head of the home. He says, Dad, your words may have weight in Canaan, but in Egypt it is a different story. There is one man who has all the authority, and he warned us in no uncertain terms, Dad, that without Benjamin we will not see his face, which certainly means that buying food is out of the question. So Judah refuses to obey his father unless his father complies with the conditions set by the Egyptian. I mean, how can sons obey their father when his plan is doomed to failure because he refuses to face the facts? So this suggests, in some situations, it can be a loving act for children to force their parents to face the facts, even though the process can be painful. To blindly obey would have helped no one in this situation and perpetuated the codependent relationships in this dysfunctional home. So Israel said in verse 6 Why do you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? <laughs> Jacob is still consumed by his personal pity party. And rather than try to lead the family through prayer and dependence upon God, he clings to his pain and nurses it by blaming his sons for placing him in this terrible predicament as if the whole predicament centered around himself. The brothers plead their innocence, explaining that they truthfully answered Joseph's pointed questions, but unfortunately, merely replaying the tapes, doesn't help their father break out of his melancholy to spiritually lead the family. So the tension mounts as they wonder if this family is going to survive. At this point, Judah courageously steps up to the plate, and in an unprecedented move of raw courage, he breaks the deadlock. Verse 8, and Judah said to his father, send the boy with me. And we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both me, we and you, and also our little ones. I will pledge, be the pledge for his safety. From my hand, you may require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, you can let me bear the blame forever. And by the way, dad, if we hadn't delayed, we could have been there twice by now. Now, since Judah was unable to get his father to act by reiterating facts, he tries to address his pain, empathize with his pain. And you notice the affectionate language he chooses, the lad, our little ones, that shows empathy for his father's heart and strikes a chord with his ultimate purpose that we may live and not die. So once he's established that his concerns are identical with his father's, he guarantees the results and he places the family fortune on the line. Judah takes total responsibility for Benjamin's safety and will take all the blame if he fails. This is the first instance in the Bible when a person has pledged his life on behalf of another. It's quite a move. Now how different this is from Reuben's earlier rash vow and how different from the time Judas sold his brother for money and later threw away his identity away as a pledge to a prostitute. Now he pledges his family fortune and reputation for the life of his brother. So finally, he prods his reluctant father into action by stressing the urgency of the situation. Had they not delayed, they could have gone to Egypt and returned twice by now. So Jacob's words sow the seed of success into his father's darkened imagination. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Verse 11. Then their father Israel said to them, if he must If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man and a little balm and a little honey, gum and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the money with you and carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it's an oversight. So a little permission, but reluctant. Verse 13, take also your brother and arise and go to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man and may he send back your brother and Benjamin. As for me, if I'm bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. It's Hebrew fatalism. Well, Judah's leadership pays off and he's able to break the reluctant Jacob out of his spiritual paralysis To think outside the narrow walls of self and into the horizons of faith. Perhaps he now thinks, well, maybe the money was just a mistake. Perhaps God really is in control and can protect sons born in the covenant by moving the hearts of men. Perhaps. And in this new state of mind, he begins to think creatively and suggests they give the man a minha, that's a present to show affection for royalty, submission to royalty. And he gives a present of the best of the land to show appreciation. Ironically, three of the goods he lists, the balm, the aromatic gum, and the myrrh, are identical to the export goods carried by the Ishmaelite traders who brought Joseph from the brothers and sold him as a slave in Egypt. So thus behind Jacob's inspired thinking we can see the hand of God orchestrating restitution and healing. Well once Jacob grants permission, he sends his sons to Egypt with God's blessing El Shaddai, the most powerful omnipotent God who keeps covenant, keeps promises. And though he's not thoroughly optimistic of the outcome, at least he's resignated to God's will if the worst happens. If I'm bereaved, I am bereaved. It's interesting, you know, melancholy, pessimistic people never want to be too optimistic, lest they're no longer the center of people's concern. It's a little like Charlie Brown. I think Jacob is the Charlie Brown of the Old Testament. You'll read this up here. This is my depressed stance, And when you're depressed, it makes a big difference how you stand, because the worst thing you can do is straighten up and hold your head high because you then start to feel better. And if you're getting any joy about being depressed, you gotta stand like this. (laughs) A lot of us are like that, right? We've lost faith because we've worked so hard, and what's happened in our work and our struggles, like Jacob, is our dreams were shattered the way we thought it would happen. So it's always this reluctancy, just never quite positive. And then I found this other one. It's not quite as relevant, but I just loved it. You just, you just. Want someone to say this to you. Sometimes I just want someone to hug me and say, I understand your pain. It's going to be okay. Here's a cup of coffee and two million (laughs) dollars. Probably has nothing to do with the text. I just liked it. Anyway, (laughs) throw that card at your friends when they're depressed. Well, I think Judah's breakthrough is absolutely remarkable and should serve as an example to all those under authority, children, wives, young men, employees. Uh, This speaks to the powerful influence your faith and leadership can exert of those ones who are over you. And with the survival of the family at stake, Judah could not wait for his father to act. And it's really a cry against passivity. As Christians, we're always called to speak to what is right and to challenge those in authority with the right thing. Well, Verse 15. So the men took this minha, the present, and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the man into the house, slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the man to Joseph's house. So the brothers are once again off to Egypt with the youngest and most adored son, Benjamin, in tow. And as both groups converge, uh, each one is bringing a gift. In anticipation of honoring the other party, Joseph's brothers bring a generous collection from the best products of the land of Canaan, plus double the money that Joseph had secretly returned to them, while Joseph has the servant prepare the king's quarters for a lavish banquet fit for royalty. Both parties are attempting to build trust. You can't have reconciliation without trust. It takes time to build trust. And they show their trust by demonstrating they are eager to contribute to each other's well-being. So these gifts aren't buying forgiveness or manipulating, they're just saying I want to contribute to your life as a gift. So this suggests that the real work of reconciliation happens a long time before people meet. God has long been at work in both parties. For Joseph, it was 12 years in prison that softened him with humility. For the brothers, three days in prison illuminated 12 years of buried guilt. And so if resurrection is coerced before God has had a chance to work in both parties, it can result in disaster. Well for Joseph and his family this long awaited reunion will happen at noon when the light of the sun is the brightest verse 18 And the men were afraid because they brought to Joseph's, because they were brought to Joseph's house and they said it's because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys almost a little comic relief, I think, that you're actually worried about your Porsche when your life's at stake with what they're going to do with my car. Anyway. The brothers are brought to the house, and when they get there, they are seized with fear. They surmise they've been summoned before the king because of the money that was secretly returned. Now, on their last visit, they were met with hostility Now things appear all too friendly, and so they suspect it may be a trap to enslave them and seize their precious donkeys. Verse 19. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house, and they said, "'Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened up our sacks, and there was each man's money in the mouth of the sack,' Our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us and we brought enough money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put the money in our sacks. So the stress builds and builds and unable to bear it any longer, they initiate leaving their quarters to knock on the king's door. That took guts. And when they do, they come clean concerning the money with Joseph Steward. Twenty years earlier they didn't have the courage to tell their father what they had did to their brother, and they buried it. Now their words ring as true as a church bell. They have proven their honesty. Verse twenty three. The steward replies, Shalom shalom, shalom, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has put treasure in their sacks for you. I received the money, and then he brought Simeon out to them. So the steward sets them at ease with the most beautiful word in the Hebrew language, shalom. All the layers of theology, well-being, wholeness, ease. Shalom, stop fearing. And followed by the safe return of their brother Simeon. And couched between this word of peace and the sight of their brother is this very surprising explanation that it was the God of Israel, the God of your fathers, that has been orchestrating these events. Are you kidding me? That's very strange words to come from an Egyptian's mouth. What do you read into that? I read Joseph has an influence in the Egyptian house. And that this steward already believes in the God of Israel. Yet stranger things are still to follow, verse 24. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, they had washed their feet. And when he had given them their donkeys' fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. Well, once Joseph's brothers are relieved, the steward shows genuine hospitality, invites them to wash, and instead of stealing their donkeys, he feeds their donkeys. Then they prepared and they arranged their gift for Joseph, a gift that was surprisingly no longer to secure his favor, but will now express their honor and appreciation. After 20 years, 20 years, which is about the same time it took for my dad and I to be reconciled, 20 years, the stage is set for Joseph's dream to be fulfilled. When Joseph came home they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and they bowed down and he inquired about their welfare and said is your father Shalom is your father well the old man of whom you speak is he still alive they said your servant our father is well he is still alive and they bowed their heads heads and prostrated themselves So Joseph enters, he receives their gifts and their submission, and after 20 years, Joseph is now in the presence of all his brothers, including Benjamin, dreams fulfilled. Yet what intrigues me is that Joseph seems more captivated, not by the fulfillment of his dream or their gift, but the news of dad. Is he still alive? It'd have been an awful thing if he was dead. So he probes his brothers for more information concerning their father's well being. Shalom is used three times. And they respond, He's alive and well. And you can only imagine them wondering, Why is a foreign king so interested in our personal family history? And then Joseph probes further, and he lifted up his eyes. And he saw his brother, Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God, be gracious to you, my son. This is probably the holiest moment in the text. The last time Joseph laid eyes on his little brother, he was an infant. Now he's a young adult probably in his 20s, bowing before him. With very measured words, Joseph gives Benjamin the most intimate Hebrew greeting full of theology possible. May God be gracious to you, my son. Hain, grace, God, my God. May God be gracious to you, and then he calls him my son. Now, the sight of the brother is too much for Joseph to bear. And I want you to look at this picture for a minute. I want you to use your imagination. Who would that be for you? God's orchestrating the universe, it's all about reconciliation. When I get to heaven, I'm going to see my son, David the daughter of Jessica, my dad. But even on earth, there are these moments when you're waiting and you get this moment and the person walks into the room and it's not just cold reconciliation, it's warm reconciliation (laughs) and it's holy. God did this for me um, after my year of depression and lost a relationship and then I got a note in the mail that I was... My my apology was accepted, that lifted my depression, but there was still no connection. Years later, I made a visit to Stanford Hospital with my granddaughter, and it was Christmas time, and we were ready to come out, and then there was this Hanukkah observation going on here with the rabbi, and I told Emmy, you wanna hear about Hanukkah? So I took her, well this took an extra 22 minutes, so now we're coming out of the doors at Stanford Hospital late. And as I'm walking out, there they are, my friends. They open the door for me. Mother, daughter, they hug me. They can't, they're so glad to see me. They take me upstairs to see the dad in the hospital. They wanna go biking with me. And the warmth, after years, was so precious. That's full reconciliation. And that's what he gets here, looking at that sun. So then Joseph hurried out, and I love this next expression. His compassion um, grew warm, heated up. And so he sought a place to weep and he entered his chamber and he wept there. And then he washed his face and came out and controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. So Joseph's a wise human being. He's wearing two hats at this party. It's very difficult. On the one hand, he's playing the role of the Egyptian lord who holds all the power over these 10 unknown Hebrew brothers and he's orchestrating events. On the other hand, he is a brother and a guest of honor at a feast of reconciliation orchestrated by God where he's the spectator. And now, up until now, he's maintained control, but at this point, he can't. And the sight of Benjamin just pushes his emotions over the edge and he begins to weep. You know, we're made to weep. Most of the time, we push our emotions down because we're embarrassed. Yeah, I did this uh, when my daughter. Um, I went to visit her when she was dying in the hospital, and I was with an elder. And I just saw her all hooked up. And I just wanted to ball, right? But I was with an elder, so I stuffed it, you know, and came home. Uh, and I regretted that moment. Walkie says that underneath the cloak of Egyptian appearance, his love for his family throbs. Which shows that for all his exaltation in Egypt, Joseph never forgot his true identity. Underneath all our workaholism, (laughs) there is these longings that throb, that really is what makes us human. But once Joseph releases his tears, he washes his face, which I have to do every day, takes control of his emotions, and re enters the chamber for this historic noon meal. Now, the last time they ate together, Joseph was pleading to them from the pit, now he's going to serve them like royalty. That's really different than getting even, isn't it? The next time you see your brothers, you wait on them and love them. They served him by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves. Because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews because that's an abomination to the Hebrew, to the Egyptians. So the protocol for the meal begins as expected with very strict segregation. Why is there segregation in Egypt? Because the Egyptians felt they were racially, ethnically, culturally superior to the Hebrews. And because of that, to eat with them is not just bad, it's an abomination. It's, It's horrific. So the king eats by himself. That's the cultural. The Egyptian servants by themselves and the 10 Hebrews, the lowest. You know what I've learned from COVID? COVID had to segregate the whole world from everybody, right? You go down the street, and I see any person coming, black, white, Asian, whatever, I go to the other side of the street for my safety. And we've done that for 15 months. And you know what happens to the soul when you segregate like that? It's hell, because why? You're alone. And that's the way the Egyptians lived. And though we're supposed to be a country that welcomes everybody by the Statue of Liberty, we know the real history that most of the time when immigrants come here, they are judged. The Irish come and they're judged. They have to live in ghettos to start, right? We made the black slaves and they've been judged ever since. And it was so helpful for me to live through COVID because I figured out what well, I'm a white guy. I'm a privileged. I've never now I know what that's like to feel alone. And I hated it. And I'm so excited to hug people. (laughs) It's like, we can really hug? And that's what the minorities have said for years and centuries. So I have empathy. Thank you, COVID. Thank you. And that's the way this meal started, but it doesn't end that way. Verse 33, they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth, and the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as theirs and they drank and were merry with them. So the normality doesn't last long. Just as the brothers take their places according to Joseph's direction, they're awestruck by the fact their seating assignments have been arranged according to the birth order. So I'm imagining he has their attention at this point To add to the attention, the king serves them from his table, breaking with convention. And when he comes to Benjamin, he gets five times the amount that the others get. So now the test is on. Can you enjoy each other when there's personal favoritism going on by the father? And what does it say? The Hebrew text literally reads, "They." Dr- <laughs> it was a free feast, they drank and got drunk with him. Now that expression, rather than being negative, can also mean they drank and became just fully content and delighted. I, I have a phrase in my home, it's in Romanian, it's my bine nu suplate, and it means it doesn't get any better than this. So they're raising their glasses and they don't care about favoritism because God's love is always just unconditional. It's such unity. It's just a, a party. And so the scene ends on this note of joyous celebration. Everybody's guard is down, tensions are gone, and a rare joy fills the air with consummate bliss. And yet for Joseph, still hidden behind the Egyptian mask, The feast of reconciliation is not complete until dad is here. And that's where this text ends. So, that concludes our second journey of Joseph's brothers to Egypt. And with it, we've uncovered more layers in the process of reconciliation. The brothers have gone a long way. They've risked a lot in their venture into Egypt. And a story that began with a famine ends with a feast. It's like the book of Ruth. And not just any feast, but a family reunion on the verge of complete restoration and reconciliation. So as we reflect, I want to focus on these two brothers who became leaders. It takes leaders to make reconciliation possible. So first, Judah. Judah. Our text began in a stalemate because of a father who refused to look beyond his personal sorrow. He was swallowed, consumed with self-pity. He would not face facts. And the family needed a leader to confront the father without violating his role as head of the family, to spur him to take his role. And to our surprise, it's Judah who rises to that occasion. Now you think about this. What a testimony of the grace of God. God chooses a man who once sold his brother for profit, turned a deaf ear to his pleas in the pit, a man who was willing to use deception as a cover for his guilty past, a man who abandoned his family of faith to intermarry with the Canaanites. At the lowest point in his life, he throws his life away and his identity and name for a brief burst of sexual pleasure with a young woman that he thinks is a cult prostitute. It would be hard to think of a lower state of human depravity than this fornicating murderer. Yet from that lowest state, God was able to turn him around, transform him into one who has wisdom and the courage to break the deadlock in the family and to be the first person in the Bible to offer his life, sacrifice for another. What does that tell us? It's not how you begin, it's how you end. I remember early on in my elder career, we were looking at a possibility of a new elder, and uh, we had some other elders from another church background, a little more conservative than ours, and one guy objected that this person's been divorced. And so I thought to myself, <clears throat> whose poetry do you read? Where do you learn how to pray? It is true that an elder is to be a one woman kind of man. Now, it's not where you were, it's who you are. And he came, became one of our best elders. Probably the longest elder. I won't tell you but he's sitting here that you can hug him after. But he has a marvelous ministry. And so there's hope for everyone, right? Transformation. And so what is it that turned him around? And I think the answer is the courage of his Canaanite daughter-in-law, Tamar. And perhaps she is the real heroine behind the remaking of this leader. That courageously risking her life for family fidelity and exposing his sin, she broke the downward spiral and elicited the first public confession of a patriarch, She's righteous, I'm not. And though we may falter for her deceptive tactics, her motive was loyalty to covenant, and God rewards her by giving her twins and placing her in the messianic line. And perhaps it was her example of confronting male leadership that gave Judah courage to confront his self pitting father. But Judah advances beyond her methods and rather than using deception, he confronts his father with the naked truth. When that fails to move the patriarch, he further urges him with self-sacrifice coupled with empathy. Where did those traits come from? I suspect it was his encounter with his daughter-in-law that played a major role. So Judah is therefore an example of the grace of God that can transform even the worst sinner into an effective leader if they're willingly to openly confront their sin as opposed to Reuben who never deals with his sexual sin and remains ineffective his entire life. So Judah and Tamar should be an encouragement to those of us who are not in positions of leadership and can play vital roles in this holy work of reconciliation. That's Judah. Well, if Judah's the leader of courage who breaks the human deadlock, Joseph has the more difficult task of playing two roles simultaneously. He's the type of Christ and the heart of God. On the one hand, he plays the lead role of a dispassionate foreign king who possesses sovereign power, uncanny knowledge to test his brothers. But on the other, he's a son and a brother with tender emotions. So if Judah models God's grace that transforms human leaders, Joseph is a type of Christ modeling God's heart in the process of reconciliation. In the Gospels, we find that Joseph's story retold in the person of Jesus. If you want bread, where do you go in the Gospels? Jesus. He is the one who holds banquets on hillsides. He gives crumbs to widows. The banquet is a lavish feast. No entrance fee apart from confession of sin. And then he doesn't require a minhah. There's no present needed. For he himself is the minhah. And his invitation goes out to all. Yet no one is coerced. And for the many, for many, he has to wait And he has to have endless patience till they come. And if one of the family flock is missing, what does he do? Like Joseph, he postpones the feast, and he leaves the 99 in search of the one. And like Joseph, his feasts are filled with controversy. If you don't like controversy, do not follow Jesus. He breaks cultural and religious norms by eating with tax collectors and sinners. He places the Palestinian right next to the Israeli. He places the Gentile next to the Jew, the privileged rich next to the bankrupt homeless, the refugee, the foreign refugee next to the CEO at Apple, and most difficult, the Republican next to the Democrat. That's our biggest divide at the moment. Sad, isn't it? The most amazing thing to me is that for all his sovereign bow, power as king, it's difficult for him to remain distant from us. When he sees a young son or daughter returning home, it's very difficult for him to remain in that royal role. And he must dismiss himself and weep and run and embrace them like a priest. That's how much he loves you. You're priceless. And the joy of your safe return means far more to him than the pain you caused him on the cross. I'm always amazed that the Father in heaven never told us what it cost him. When Jesus is being crucified, the heavens turn black, the Father is weeping, but we don't know it, and he never holds that against us and never puts it on us. It's only his love. So, I'll receive this benediction and then feel free to fellowship outside in the wonderful air and the beauty of the day. The word of the Lord. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in shalom. And the God of love and shalom will be with you. Amen.